Yeshua's treatment of others when he was in this world in the first century was controversial. In fact, many who witnessed his love was intolerant thereof, for he loved even his enemies. He even loved those that the world pushed aside, those whom the world called and considered unlovable. How could he be around people who was in sin? How could he be around people who were considered the arch enemies of his people? How could he even be around people who held opposing theologies? These were the questions that the people were grappling with in the first century. Brothers and sisters, I want to submit that our Messiah was most passionate about theology. He was in ministry himself, but perhaps it was this this perfect understanding of his father, what that which theology is, the study of God, that led him to the conclusion that love is always to be prioritized. And that is perhaps why he treated people with such incredible love. And so tonight we want to talk about some of those encounters. We want to look at the examples of Yeshua speaking with people, even people whom it wasn't popular to speak with. And we also want to talk about how Yeshua told us to identify false prophets. Tonight, I'm joined by a dear brother, Daniel Botkin. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me here tonight with this topic. Glad to be with you again. Yes, uh, guys, for anyone who is not familiar with Daniel, perhaps Daniel Bodkin is a born again disciple of Yeshua. He's a teacher, author and publisher at Gates of Eden magazine, an award winning artist and an elder at his local congregation in Peora, Illinois. Daniel, we ha- I had you on a few months ago and it was such an amazing conversation. You shared your testimony therein. So if anyone's watching this and they want to go and check that out, guys, remember, you can go watch that testimony of Daniel to find out more about his amazing story of how he came to Christ. Uh, Daniel, could you share some of your opening thoughts with us tonight? Because, you know, the reason we're having this conversation is because of an article you wrote that I really was so inspired by. And it was about you, you titled it Our Treatment of People. And if I may just open up with something you wrote, and then we can take it from there. You said, from the four Gospels, I get the impression that Yeshua is more concerned about how we treat people than he is about how clearly we understand all the minute details of doctrine and theology. Can you share a little more about that? Yeah, well, the reason I say that is, uh, like I said in the opening paragraph, I had, um, I actually wrote that article about two years ago, and then I put it on my blog last week or the week before. So it was about two years ago. I just read through the four Gospels again for, I don't know how many times I've read them, and and uh, it, it just struck me. I, I didn't, didn't make any new discoveries, really, but it just reinforced the fact that the high priority he put on our treatment of other people, that he seems to focus on that more than anything else in his teachings. Uh, he 
he obviously gets into some theological doctrinal things, obviously, but so much of it has to do with how we treat one another. And I think in, uh, in the world of believers, sometimes Bible believers, you know, we get focused when we, we hear the word doctrine, which just means teaching. And what were some of the main things he taught, not only by his words, but also by his example? Uh, he uh, taught that how we treat people is high priority. Absolutely. And that, that is why the greatest two commandments are all about people. It's about the person who is the, the creator, how we should love him, and then people around us loving our neighbor as ourselves. And, you know, sometimes I think we've had it backwards. We've, we are sometimes more concerned about doctrine. And it comes at the expense of treating people well. Well, Yeshua was absolutely concerned about doctrine, of course, but he that didn't stop him from treating people well. And I think that's the point you're making. Yes. Uh, yeah, as you said, the two greatest commandments at our congregation every Sabbath, you know, we start with the Shema and we say the Ve'ahavta, you know, in Hebrew and then in English, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and might, all, all your heart and soul and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then afterwards, I say, on these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. Just, I mean, everybody knows that. But it's a good reminder to say it every Sabbath. <laughs> That on, I think, on these commandments hang all the law and prophets. And that Hebrew, if you say that in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for hang is talui, which it can mean not only to hang upon, but it can mean to depend on. So our love for God and our love for our fellow man, I did a little diagram years and years ago where I had, okay, you got the two commandments and two boxes here. And on those two commandments hang the Ten Commandments, the first Four have to do with loving God, no other gods, you know, no graven images, uh, don't take his name in vain, keep the Sabbath. And then the other six have to do with our treatment of people, you know, honor your father and mother, no murder, no adultery, and so forth. And so just as the Ten Commandments hang on the two greatest commandments, all the other commandments hang on those ten. You know, they fit into categories. So loving our neighbor as ourselves, it, it, it's... That should be all that needs to be said. But the problem is people say, well, who is really my neighbor? Oh, and that's yes. Exactly, you know, when Yeshua was here and, and uh, somebody asked him, and who is my neighbor? And then that's when he told the parable of the Good Samaritan, which he really may call it the Good Samaritan. The Bible never calls him good. He called him a certain Samaritan. Right. We, we can talk about that. But isn't that interesting how... Like in that situation, the person asking this, I believe he was a legal-minded man, you know, it's almost like he was trying to find, it says in the scriptures he was trying to justify himself. So he was trying to find an excuse, a way out of the, because in his heart he was probably kind of pricked, but he wanted to, to ask the Messiah this. And I think it's very typical that on this topic that people are looking for ways out of this without even yeah. realizing it because it's the most difficult. It's the greatest and the most difficult of the Father's commandments, because it's one thing to keep a Sabbath day holy. It's one thing to have a certain diet or but when it comes to loving people, which is not just you know, people always say, yeah, uh, if you love him, keep his commandments. And yes, that's that's part of expressing love to our father. But that's the fruit of loving him. 
And so love is something that we're actually familiar with if we have families, if we have close friends, but somehow that gets lost when it comes to our faith. We we mix up that it's we, we somehow forget that those emotions of, of love, which are manifest in actions, should still be in us and through us as the Father and the Holy Spirit wants to move through us in loving our brothers and sisters. Right. So I, I guess what I would like to say before we get into this a bit more is what we're not saying, because, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, can be easily misunderstandings with this topic is so much that the world has said about love as well. We are not saying a few. I want to say four things. We're not saying that that good doctrine isn't extremely important. We're also not saying that there isn't a place in certain cases for separating from people due to dangerous doctrines that they may have. We're also not saying that sin, if we go through uh, the correct process, you know, in identifying it, in dealing with that, that it isn't to be addressed. As long as we follow, for example, Matthew 18 or whatever process that the Father lays out for us. And we're also not saying that actual false prophet prophets aren't to be addressed, right? I think, uh, Daniel, correct me if I'm wrong, of course, but but I think we both agree that that these things remain important. However, I think what happens is people, they start in in those four things I just mentioned, they start getting confused because it's like, okay, but what is it? In what case can I separate from a brother or sister? Because that becomes anything and everything, depending on our own theological passion. Or we say things like, well, um, um, how do we address sin? Do we just go on Facebook and blast whatever we think someone is doing? Or is there a process to follow that needs our discernment? Or and, and regarding false prophets, do we just jump on social media and, and say this is and that is a false prophet? You know, I think as we go along, we'll, we'll discuss some of this. But do you also see that these are issues in the body that people just kind of jump on and struggle to love in these areas? Yeah, because as you say, there are situations where you do have to separate from certain people. Uh, I mean, the Bible even gives some guidelines, you know, Paul and his epistle says, you know, don't associate one who calls himself a brother and is doing these particular things. You separate yourself from that person. And then he clarifies, I'm not saying from unbelievers, you know, but so, you know, we do have some guidelines in the scriptures, but sometimes those guidelines in the scriptures are not specific enough where we can just make a blanket statement that covers every situation because you know every situation is going to have its own specific set of details and uh you know i tell people if somebody is acting inappropriately on a habitual basis there's a reason for it it doesn't mean that there's an excuse for it but there's a reason you know if somebody is just it, you know they've just got a something in their personality that just is is improper, bad social skills, whatever it would be, or they, you know, I don't want to get too much in detail because I don't want anybody to know who I'm talking about. <laughs> but years ago, somebody was talking about how they just couldn't stand this one person. And, and I had to explain to these younger people, I said, now I'm, 
I realize this person's behavior is inappropriate. There's no excuse mm. for it, but there is a reason for it. And you have to keep that in mind. Something in their past, again, it doesn't excuse their behavior, but something in their past influenced them, molded and shaped them to turn out with the kind of personality they have. And, and so we have to be patient with people when it's just a, you know, a personality flaw, that's good. Yeah. And sometimes I, it's, it's hard to know, you know, where does, where do you cross that line from just uh, bad social skills to actual sin and uncaring and, and so forth. And sometimes it's, it's difficult to know. So we, we need to give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, that's good. And that's one thing I really see a need for because so many times people will see somebody do something or say something and they jump to conclusions. Uh, mm. Like maybe they see a brother or sister go into some bar, some sleazy bar, and they say, oh, I saw them going into the bar. <laughs> well, what we don't know is their car broke down and they they needed to have a, a make a phone call. Of course, I'm thinking in the past before cell phones, you know, but sure. now everybody's got a cell phone. But, you know, maybe they went in there because they needed to get, a, you know, help. Maybe their phone was dead and they just, that's the only way they could get help. Or, um, you know, we can't jump to conclusions. We have to give people the benefit of the doubt. And if I could share just uh, one story about that. Uh, years ago, I had an art studio, a little cubicle I rented in this big art center. And and um, I had some of my artwork that I had done hanging on the wall. And I had one painting I did about the death of St. Peter. And if you know history, you know, Peter was crucified upside down. He said, I'm not worthy to die the same way my master did. If you're going to crucify me, crucify me upside down. That's not in the Bible, as most of your viewers probably know, but it's you know, history. Anyway, I did a painting of Peter crucified upside down. And I was up there one day, and this man came up and kind of snapped at me. He said, did you paint that? I said, yeah. I said, it's, it's a picture of Peter. And then I told him the story about how Peter wanted to be crucified upside down. I was, oh, oh. He said, okay, I understand. I get it. He said, uh, well, my wife and her friend were up here, and they thought it was some kind of an Antichrist statement, you know, that <laughs> right. cross. you know, so people jump to conclusions instead of giving them the benefit of the doubt. And I'm sure, you know, all of us could probably think of stories where we saw somebody jump to conclusions yeah. or wrong conclusion, made a bad judgment. And, you know, Paul said, love believeth all things. Well, that's we good. Believe the best about people or the worst about people. And it's funny because it seems in as though when I read the scriptures that when the Holy Spirit is leading someone, that he often led them into places that were extremely unexpected, but both for the person and for everyone around. And yes. we see this with Paul, we see this with Yeshua. And I, I'd love for us to look at some of those examples in the, in the biblical story, because it would perhaps help us most to understand these situations, to discern more. Uh, because, and remember that the Messiah was, uh, they said he's a drunkard, he's a wineberber, you know, and they accused John the Baptist of other things as well. And if that is the expectation that someone led by the spirit like our master was, is going to be accused, then it should probably mean that we shouldn't jump on bandwagons with crowds accusing people of things because that in of itself is a very dangerous path, it seems, because the crowds yeah. were wrong in these cases. 
yeah, we don't want to be false accusers. And, um, it, you know, I, I'm the type of person, I give people the benefit of the doubt. And some people might think I'm too soft. I'm not being soft. I'm just being cautious before I, before I make an accusation that somebody did or said a certain thing. I want to know the facts. I want to, you know, I want to look into it and find out what's the real story behind it before I make any accusation or label mm. somebody because I so many people do that. And we're, and we're going to stand before the father for every idle word he says. You know, our words will justify and condemn. So it's, for me, it's it's both. I don't want to falsely accuse for the for the sake of the person, and well, that means I'm going to have to answer for false accusations. And we know how serious the father takes that. So uh, let's look at. Uh, I know you meant your article mentioned one such example. You talked about the Samaritan woman and uh, her meeting with the Messiah, and you said he ate with sinful people and taught Samaritan people, even a Samaritan woman. Share a little bit about that encounter. Yeah, well, as you said, uh, said earlier, you talked about being led by the Spirit. And, you know, before he went to Samaria, there's a passage there in John where it says, he must needs, in the King James Version says, he must needs go through Samaria. Because the Father had somebody there that he was going to encounter and speak to about the living water and and uh, and it was unusual because remember she said to him, "How is it that you, being a Jew, talk to me a Samaritan?" Because the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And if you know where the Samaritans came from and why they why the Jews didn't get along with him, you can understand why the the Jews had that prejudice. But he he broke those social barriers and he spoke to a Samaritan, not just a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. And the fact that she was a Samaritan woman surprised the disciples when they came back and it says they marveled that he was speaking with a woman and it was a Samaritan woman. So um, he was obviously led by the spirit because the spirit gave him a word of knowledge about that woman and it resulted in her going back to town and telling everybody I met a man who told me all things that ever I did and then they all come out and he stays with them for a period of time and and uh, and teaches them. So uh, while the other Jews would have no dealings with the Samaritans, he did. Yes, and uh, just to to if I may add this to you know to help because you, you mentioned the Samaritans and the Jews they had no dealings with one another. Some things I'm just I just pulled up a little uh, explanation. Who were the Samaritans and what was up with that? It says they had their own unique copy of the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. They believed that they alone preserved the original Mosaic religion, and they also had a unique religious system and established their primary worship site on Mount Gerizim, and considered, therefore, the Jerusalem temple and Levitical priesthood illegitimate. So, yeah. like, theologically, these yeah. Samaritans and the, the Jews are, there. I can't think of greater theological enemies when yeah. you start yeah. saying... Yeah, when you start saying your temple is illegitimate, your priesthood is illegitimate, your your whole religious system is fake and yeah. false. Yeah, and Yeshua even said to the woman during their conversation, when she starts asking him, you say we should worship in Jerusalem, we worship here. Right. He said, you worship, you know not what. We know what we right. worship for salvation is <laughs> of the Jews. No, he didn't hold back from you know the truth. 
but you know he said you know you don't you don't don't know what you worship but the time is coming when they that worship the father will worship him in spirit and in truth and so mm-hmm. you know he's looking forward to a time where the location is not going to be mm-hmm. i mean jerusalem is still the city of god obviously it's still a wonderful place sure. it's the center of the, the world but but as far as worship goes it, it's not going to be limited to jerusalem or samaria and another uh, reason the Jews didn't get along with the Samaritans is because if you go back into uh, Kings, after the 10 tribes were taken out of their territory, then they repopulated the area with pagans. And the pagans, uh, remember, if you remember the story, that they worshipped idols and the Lord sent lions among them and they were killing some of them off. So they said, well, we don't know how the God of this territory wants to be worshipped. Send a Levite here so we, we'll know how the God of Israel wants to be worshipped. So they mix the worship of the God of Israel with the worship of their other gods. And so it was kind of a, a blended syncretistic uh, right. worship system. And then also in the book of Nehemiah, you read about the Samaritans. They, they would come and oppose the work of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So mm-hmm. you know, there's a long history there. And there are still Samaritans today living in the land of Israel, still with their own Pentateuch. That's the only Bible they recognized. Right. But then the key is, so Yeshua recognizes her, you know, the Samaritan woman's false theology in the areas that it was problematic. But then he shows great love and compassion, giving her living water. In fact, there's something I think that happens in her heart because she she seems like healed in her heart from her past, all of the the searching that she's gone through her life, through going through all these men and husbands and so on. So something has happened there. And the question is, is when we encounter someone who has theology or who is a people group, this is not just even about theology, but a, a people group whom our people are, you know, they're not, they're not walking with, how are we treating those people? Are we coming with living water? Are we coming with compassion? He didn't just, you know, uh, preach at her. He shared the truth and love, but he did it in action, the love aspect as well, in action. So she knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that this Messiah loves me. He cares for me. So if we're sharing with people, they must come at least to the conclusion, regardless of whether they fully agree with what we're saying, they must have the conclusion that we care, that we love them. And that has got a lot to do with how we speak, our tone, how we approach people. If, If Yeshua went and he just started going, he said, oh, I saw that woman. And he goes on Facebook, if there was a Facebook, and he starts making statuses about this woman and how she had many husbands. And like, imagine something like that. That would be crazy. But yet that's what we sometimes find all over the Internet today, what we do to one another. So his approach is so beautiful. Yeah, you you spoke about caring, showing care. Um, I I recently wrote an article called... um, helping Christians transition with faith-affirming care. Now, by transition, I'm not talking about gender at all. I'm talking about transitioning to the messianic way of of living out our faith. It it is a transition process, and it needs to be done with faith-affirming care. We, you You know, we want 
Christians to understand things like Sabbath and the festivals and dietary laws, stuff like that, that we Messianic people do. But if we do it in a way that is just bashing and labeling them pagans and all that stuff, they need to know that we care about them, that we really care. And it has to be faith affirming care. And, uh, and by that, I mean this, I explained in my article, we have to affirm that their faith in Jesus Christ is real. It, it's, it's legitimate. Even if they don't understand things like Sabbath and dietary laws yet, their faith, if they're truly a born again believer, it's legitimate even if they're misinformed about some of these, these details. And um, the article, I say that, you know, I, I say that I don't know everybody on, I got, I think around 1400 people on my mailing list for my, my magazine. And I don't know everybody, obviously, but I think it would be interesting if I could send out a survey and ask my readers, how many of you started your walk with the Lord from the very beginning, keeping Sabbath, knowing about the festivals, keeping the dietary laws? How many of you started your walk with the Lord in a Sunday church? How many years did you study the Bible before you understood the importance of some of these commandments? And did you ever think that the Old Testament law was abolished as a Christian? And I think that answers to questions like these would show right. that most of my readers are trans-Messianic, that they, they transition from mainstream Christianity to a Messianic uh, way of walking. Absolutely. And, and I would also ask, you know, I think the most important question I think Messianic people need to ask themselves is, was my original conversion experience real? Was it genuine or was it counterfeit? Now, I can't speak for everybody, obviously, but I look at my own experience, my conversion experience. I came to the Lord and I tell people I was a pork-eating, Sabbath-breaking Christian for 17 years. But during those 17 years, I had a real relationship with Heavenly Father because he knew that I was doing things those things not out of rebellion and defiance. I had simply been misinformed by well-meaning people who had been misinformed by well-meaning people before them. And, you know, some people might think, well, yeah, but uh, isn't pork eating and Sabbath breaking a sin? And I would say, well, technically, yes, because sin is a transgression of the law. But consider this, under the old covenant, sins of ignorance were covered by the blood of animal sacrifices. Now think about this. If sins under the old covenant were covered by the blood of animal sacrifices, don't you think that sins of ignorance for those under the new covenant are covered by the blood of the sacrifice of Messiah? How much so, more so? Yeah, how much more so? And I tell people, you know, for 17 years, I mean, I was a faithful, zealous Christian. I, you know, I, I never backslid. I read my Bible. I prayed. I fasted. I, I, I had read before, before things came into focus, Sabbath and Torah, you know, stuff like that. I had read through the whole Bible 14 times and I had read through most of it in Hebrew. I had lived in Israel for over two years and it had been exposed to Orthodox Judaism and I had studied the feasts, studied about them. I had missed long portions of scriptures. You know, I, I earnestly, zealously sought the Lord for 17 years, but there was a veil and the Lord eventually opened my eyes. So because of my own experience, I guess I have a lot of patience for for Christian people who just 
they don't get it yet. You know, these areas, you know, that I say, well, I didn't get it for 17 years. Oh, and look exactly. how zealous the Lord. So, yeah, we need to let people know that we care, whether they're Christians or whether they're unbelievers. They, they need to know that we care about them. Absolutely. So good. Thanks for sharing that. And I think everyone can connect no matter how long it took. In your case, you said 17 years. Uh, for me, not not as long, but I I can still have the same grace. I can still see where I was at, how I grew up, what I was taught. And I have to have that patience, that grace, that graciousness towards others. I want to also share a, a few more just quick examples of Yeshua amongst people who could we have this idea that if you're you you can only be around people in your own group your own clique in your own way of thinking that's what people do they make denominations around that idea however like you know like being in a gang <laughs> yeah you're right it's true you know it's but yet like we see him preaching at synagogues like in luke 4 he's preaching at a synagogue and the theolo theological difference there is so great that they want to throw him off a cliff when he's done with his few lines of preaching. Like he just, he can barely preach a sermon. He didn't even, it was a few lines he said, and they want to throw him out, throw him off a cliff, kill him. And yet he, he, he knew this going there. I mean, he wasn't ignorant of that fact, I'm sure. So, you know, when we see someone else, and I've seen this many times, a different a minister, who is invited to somewhere and they're going to speak there and and there's theological i can see the people that they that he may be the church he may be speaking at there may be in some different area in some area but then people come and they they judge the person for just going to share for going to give a life for going to speak truth you know and i think it's so important that we have grace and understanding that our messiah was was doing these things because he came for everyone he came for the religious uh, man. He came for the sinner. He came for the Samaritan, whoever. And he sent us to them all as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, a, a kind of a, what's the word? A, a, not a disclaimer, but a clarification. You know, when we talk about hanging out with sinners, um, mm. it's important for people to understand if hanging out with sinners is causing you to weaken in your faith, and if you are being you are being drawn into temptations by hanging around with them, then something needs to be done differently. You need to either have somebody else be with you. Uh, you know, when the Lord sent people out, it was two by two. So, you know, it's good if, if there can be somebody with you when you're hanging out with sinners. But we are to be a light. If they are drawing us into darkness, then something's wrong with that picture. So we are supposed to influence them in a positive way and not have them affect us in a negative way. There's a verse in Proverbs that says, uh, he that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. So mm. we don't want to get to the point where we are companions, companions. Right. You know, we we're part of them that our main hanging out with would be with wise men. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise. But we need to be among the unbelievers and to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. Absolutely. Amen. That's a good, thank you for adding that. It's a good, what fellowship does light have with darkness, right? And that's the word fellowship in that case. 
you know so yeah that's key for us to know uh, another example I can think about is um, how Yeshua met with Pharisee leaders, um, even in their homes, like uh, Luke Luke seven thirty nine, and the Pharisee says, "If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner." And so that's that was quite interesting to me because Yeshua is there. Firstly, in the house of a Pharisee who he has theological disagreements with, obviously. And this certain Pharisee is looking, he's testing the Messiah, I guess. He's he's not totally friendly because he's saying, well, he's obviously not a prophet. So his judgment of what a prophet is, is, is false, really, because he's not using a biblical sound judgment. He's, he, but what, well, in reality, a being being kind to a, a woman, a Gentile woman like this one, is actually the sign of a true prophet or someone who has the heart of God. Uh, and it's it, so I found it interesting that Yeshua is not afraid of a house of disagreement, of a entering a place where there is this one man, there is this woman, the, the, the Pharisee leader, like Yeshua isn't there to please him. He's not compromising. He's not... He's not um, kind of like how Peter was, I guess, right? Peter and Paul, where Peter drew away from the Gentiles. In this case, Yeshua is drawing near her, this Gentile lady, uh, despite her being a sinner. Um, and and I love this beautiful moment there, proving to this religious man what it's supposed to look like. Okay. So, yeah, I, there's a few more we can talk about. Uh, Yeshua meets Nicodemus. Um, we see, for example, how he uh, meets with Nicodemus at night. And this was quite interesting to me as well, because it was almost we know that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews, as it said. And perhaps this was an indicator, you know, of what that he cared about what others may think of him. If he were to meet the Messiah in the daytime, as everyone can see it, this meeting being so secretive, of course, I don't know the, the exact intentions of Nicodemus's heart. I don't know if you have any thoughts, but but it's interesting that the Messiah meets with him, but also meets in the daytime with others. He is not like someone who just, oh, I'm in secretly meeting with the ones whom I'm not supposed to be seen with. Because he's not out to please the religious minds. He's simply out to please his father. What do you, do you have any thoughts about that meeting? Uh, yeah. Yeah. With Nicodemus, you know, I've heard people say, well, he came at night because he didn't want people to know. And yeah, you know, like you say, that's one of the things we don't really know for sure. That's yeah. the reason. But, but he did spend time talking with him in depth and in a lot of detail. And uh, I think that's the only person he actually said the words you must be born again to um i mean obviously everybody needs to be born again but um you know he he uh spoke with him at length and nicodemus what i find interesting about nicodemus is he said we know that you are a teacher come from god now he didn't say i know he said we know and he's a ruler of the pharisees so in effect he's saying we meaning we pharisees 
we know you're a teacher come from God because no man can do these miracles unless God is with him. So he knew that he was a teacher come from God. But, um, and, and it's interesting too in that whole conversation how I, I noticed, oh, back in 1977 when I read through the Gospel of John one time, I noticed how many questions people asked in the Gospel of John and the way he responded it seems like he doesn't even answer in their question, but he's, right. he, he is, he is telling them what they need to hear, you know, cause Nicodemus says that and his reply was, except a man be born again. You know, it's like, cause I even went through in the Bible. I would had, I would mark all the question marks in John's gospel. And then I would look at the reply he gave, but, but he right. spoke to people. He told them what they needed to hear, you know, regardless of their question. And of course, some of their questions, he answered with a question. You know, the baptism right. of John was it heaven or of men. You know? and, uh, and I tell people that's the Jewish way. A lot of, you know, Jewish people will answer a question with a question. Like the Gentile says, why do you Jews always answer a question with a question? And the Jew says, what's wrong with that? Yeah, so. Exactly. That's good. That's so good. Uh, I want to give two more examples quickly here. The other the one is another one I think about is Judas. Uh, Judas was, I, I, I have a feeling that the Messiah kind of knew about Judas not being That's totally in, you know, yeah. in with his whole heart before, you know, that faithful day. And yet, of course, in the father's plan, Judas had a greater purpose. And so, and I guess that is something we should all be wary of is sometimes the father has a purpose with people and situations. And in this case, who the Messiah allowed in his inner circle, a purpose that no one would have understood until it actually happened. Right. And, and he, washed, he washed Judas's feet, you know, knowing yes. that he was going to do what he did. That's good. Yes. And so imagine if, if everyone knew who Judas was like really in his heart of hearts and yet the Messiah is washing his feet and everyone sees that it makes it even more. I mean, now looking back, it's making it even more powerful that moment because the Messiah is washing the feet of the one to betray him. And that's a good question for us of are we loving people, even betrayers in that way that we would wash their feet? And last one I would bring up is uh, Yeshua met with sinners and tax collectors. This is kind of the obvious one that people always think about. But you mentioned you, you wrote it in your article in a beautiful way. That I want to quote you said the rescue of sinners and Samaritans was more important to him than his reputation in the eyes of religious hypocrites. Right. So yeah, I guess go ahead. I was going to say it's it's a matter of priorities, of having our priorities in the right order. Seek first the kingdom of God. That means the rule, the reign of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Now, that's in the context of, you know, having our needs met. But in every context, we should seek first the kingdom of God. And, and the kingdom of God is a kingdom that he wants to draw people into. And uh, if we have to associate with sinners and tax collectors, you know, if, if that's where the Spirit's leading us to, then that's where we should be, to be a light to them and to do what we can to draw them in. Absolutely.
there's also the case for the Messiah just coming to mind. Um, the disciples were seeing someone cast out demons in uh, Mark 9, and they're like, uh, we forbid him. We want to stop this guy because he's not following with us, is what they say. Yeah. So they're yeah. concerned because that guy's not in their inner circle, their group. And today we can think about it in terms of they're not in my church. They're not in my denomination. They're not in my whatever, your group. And Yeshua says, don't stop him for the one who does for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me for the one who is not against us is for us. So that mighty work of casting out demons is obviously a demonstration of God's Holy Spirit working in that person. And he's doing it in the name of the Messiah. And that's for he's saying that should be kind of a sign to you guys that you guys are all on the same team because you're all working for the same kingdom and that you shouldn't divide over making your own groups. Yeah, you know, I, I remember when I was a brand new believer, um, I was encountered by uh, some members of a cult. And I was very impressed with what they did and so forth. And yet there just seemed to be something that, you know, I had read through the whole Bible. I, I had just finished reading through the whole Bible in two weeks. I'd read through the whole Bible. So I was a brand new believer. And there was something about them that appealed to me, but they they said that they and they alone were the one true body of Messiah of Christ. You know that this is the this is the real. Our organization is the one. Other people out there they can get saved. You know they can go to heaven, but as far as the the real true church, that's us. That's us. And. Uh, you know, that's very appealing to a new believer sometimes. Right. But I read Luke 9, 49 and 50, which is where well, you quoted from Luke's gospel, I think, about the man casting out demons and the disciples saying, well, he's, he's doing it. He's not one of us. And that gave me the freedom to say, well, I don't have to join that group. And then later on, I found out it was a horrible, horrible cult. It's now defunct and no longer exists, thank God. But uh, yeah, that like I said earlier, we're not gang members you know we're not saying well he's not one of our gang and he's on our turf and you know we, we don't have gang wars with each other right i mean we Absolutely. You know, we can have disagreements about doctrines and and some doctrinal disagreements are important enough to uh to divide over and to label as dangerous false doctrine i mean you know you know false doctrines you know, there are a lot of things that people can believe that are relatively harmless that doesn't really necessarily affect how they're going to live out their faith. Uh, and I'm kind of afraid to mention him because some people might think it is, it is important enough. But um, things like, uh, okay, the Nephilim, were they uh, hybrid creatures that came about from the sons of Cain? Uh, mating with the daughters of Seth or, 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 or the, uh, what was it? Okay. The, the angels mating with human women, or was it the descendants of Cain mating with the daughters of Seth? 
you know, where did the Nephilim come from? What were they? Which way you believe on that? It's not going to affect people's faith. Even things like uh, the age of the earth. You know, some people are hardcore 6,000 years old. And if you think it's any older than that, you're a heretic and you're in serious error. And uh, I just say, I don't know the age of the earth. I'm not convinced that it has to be only 6,000 years because I think there are different ways to look at it. But things like that, I believe we can give people Absolutely. liberty. The old saying, uh, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity, love. Nice. So there are some things it. that we have to agree on. Some things are absolutely essential that we agree on these things. Some things are non-essentials, and we need to give people liberty in those areas. Now, the only problem is defining which things are essential and which are non-essential. Yeah. If we could do that, that would yeah. be so. May Perhaps if we look at the Messiah in this area, we would get some help. Because that's a yeah. big question right now, That you and I'm glad you just went there. So when you think about Yeshua and the Pharisees, and this is what everyone thinks about when they, it seems almost like when people want to speak really harshly, they always point to, well, the Messiah did it. I can do it, right? And often that is an ignorance to the discernment that the Messiah had in the moments of who the people were he was speaking out, what they were doing, what they were teaching. And so, you know, just from my side, um, when we think about his approach and, and what these Pharisees believed, there's three things that I see. Number one, I see that there was uh, an intentional hypocrisy for the sake of gain on the side of these certain Pharisees. In other words, they were trying to build their own kingdoms. They were using their positions for gain among people for riches and profiting in all kinds of ways. And they did it whilst acting, walking out hypocrisy. So, you know, that's what you mentioned earlier, Daniel. You mentioned what Paul said regarding certain sins. Uh, those who, uh, 1 Corinthians 5.11, I'll read it for us. Perhaps I can even pull it up here for us all quick. He says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So when you look at greed here, you know, that is one of the things that the, those certain Pharisees could have fallen into. Reviler is someone who is an abuser of people and we or a swindler, you know. So there's there's multiple of these that, that they would have fallen into. These are... These are a list of sins that we know that we know that Paul is saying these ones, if people are doing this habitually without repentance, that it's a signal that these sins are worth div dividing over, right? So that it doesn't defile the rest of the, the body, the rest of the, the fellowship. The second thing that I see is if someone is purposefully leading people away from the Messiah, like how them those certain Pharisees wanted to, they they were saying saying that he is a false witness, and they were spreading false witnesses about him. They were just trying to distort the gospel message, and then the third is that they purposefully led people away from God's presence. 
with man-made burdens. So at the temple, when he was coming with his whips, that's what was happening there. You know, they were with what they were doing, keeping people from making offerings if they didn't have the um, the means to do so. They were making it more difficult to do so by the with the money changing and everything that was happening there. So those are three things for on my mind that is makes it a little easier for us to, to define uh, again hypocrisy for uh, if we if we're walking hypocrisy in certain deep sins without repentance and if we're leading people away from the Messiah or the presence of the Father I don't know if you have thoughts about that yeah and uh, another thing about the Pharisees is that he had the right to rebuke them the way he did because of who he was, obviously, the Son of God, with perfect knowledge and, you know, perfect in every way. But also, okay. he was a member of the family, so to speak. You know, he, it was an in-house, an in-house thing. And, you know, that's quite different from us, uh, somebody like me, you know, going on a campaign to uh, bash a certain denomination. Now, it doesn't mean that I don't have a right to point out the errors that certain people teach, but to go on a, you know, a personal attack against individuals. Yeah, you know, at what point does it become necessary and important to do? Um, yeah, it's, it's a hard thing sometimes because, you know, sometimes uh, I'll see somebody, you know, they'll present some some teaching that is just way off base, you know, it's just ridiculous. And I think, okay, should I, cause, cause I write articles. Okay. I publish my magazine and I think, well, should I write an article to address that error? And I have to ask, I ask, have to ask myself, is it, is it that dangerous of an error? And secondly, would it just draw more attention to the person teaching this? And expose more people to that doctrinal error by addressing it or would it be better just to ignore it and hope that it goes away hope that people just ignore it and uh, and with a lot of these things it is better just to ignore it because uh right you know if i guess it, it depends yeah, how how big it is already and if it's a small eh, you know but if it becomes a real issue but these are really important considerations you're raising i agree with all of them yeah, because sometimes I'll get a phone call or an email from somebody uh, asking for advice because their congregation is having a division over some doctrine. You know, that somebody has come into the congregation, they brought in some strange doctrine, and, and people are arguing about it. Some people are wanting to split off and, and, uh, and leave. And, you know, so, yeah, in a situation like that, it needs to be addressed. You know, that something needs to be done, that, that the leadership needs to address it and say look this doctrine this is what we the leadership this is the position we take on this and you know if, if you hold the other view you can come but you can't be trying to uh promote your pet doctrine. absolutely absolutely yeah no so and i want everyone to know that you know we us talking here you know we are not going soft on you know, right. dangerous doctrine here. When there is dangerous doctrine, 
we should act like we should bring correction in in a congregational setting or whatever that is. But I guess what we're trying to say is there's a whole lot of people who consider things dangerous doctrine when it isn't necessarily dangerous doctrine. And, and simply when we look at what they do with what they what they're encountering. In other words, we go and we expose someone. We say, you know, like, because that's what happened in the scriptures with Yeshua all the time. Like, they were saying, oh, he's doing it, but he's causing out devils by the prince of devils, Beelzebub. And, oh, he's a drunkard and a wine-bibber. And, oh, he's he's dining with sinners and tax collectors. And, like, endless dangerous doctrines that the Messiah was busy with. And yet, all of it was a false accusation. So, when we do this, we approach it with fear and trembling, discernment, slowly, and... And perhaps we should then touch on, like, you, you touched on this in your article, Daniel, false prophets. I think that is a thing that people, they're quick to call brothers and sisters false who have a different theology on some area. Yeah. How do we deal with that false yeah. prophet thing? Yeah, you know, the interesting thing to me in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, beware of false prophets who are inwardly, you know, that they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. So the sheep's clothing means outwardly, that's the first sign is they just look like a normal Christian, normal believer. But there's something inside them that is hungry, ravenous for power. Uh, yeah, there it is there. They come to you in sheep's clothing. So outwardly they look like a real believer. Then Yeshua said, you'll recognize them by their fruits. He says, are grapes gathered from from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A rhetorical question, obviously not. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, the diseased tree bears bad fruit. So consider this, okay, he's got the fruit in two categories. He's got the first category is grapes and figs. Second category, thistles and thorns. What's the contrast there? Grapes and figs are sweet, nourishing, healthy. People like to eat them. Thistles and thorns, they are harmful, they scratch, they cut, they wound. And so false prophets are identified by which of those two categories are they in. Are their teachings more like grapes and figs? Are their teachings sweet and nourishing and easy to swallow and healthy and edifying? Do they encourage? Or are their teachings more like thistles and thorns? They hurt, they scratch, they scrape. They wound. Mm. And, you know, a lot of times when people hear the word false doctrine, they think of, you know, theological questions like, you know, does he believe in a trinity or not trinity? Or does he believe in a rapture or no rapture? You know, which doctrine? Mm. You know, doctrine, when, when Yeshua addresses false prophets here in the Sermon on the Mount, he's pointing to those two categories of the grapes and figs or thistles and thorns, that those are the primary two categories of the kind of fruit that they bear. And so I say that the false prophets, it's more than just false doctrine. I mean, obviously, false prophets can include some false teaching there, false doctrine. But the main thing to look for is, you know, which category is their their ministry, their words and their deeds? Are they more oh, like so missiles and thorns? And if I may add the last, the one more verse here, what he said, because he said, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, 
nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. In other words, it's not just you going and seeing, oh, there's this one teaching they have I don't agree with, so therefore they're false, therefore they're a false prophet, whatever. No, he's saying that you need to look at the whole tree and right. you need to consider that if there's good fruit, there's good fruit and you have to judge righteously the tree then as being good. You can't just look at one thing that you don't agree with and say, well, this whole tree is rotten. We have yeah. to judge carefully, discerning, righteously and and slowly, because I think so we're so quick these days in, in this age of social media to jump on yeah. bandwagons. Guys, there's ministries devoted to this thing and they are too quick. They jump the gun on things. And the Messiah said that the measure you use to judge others by will be measured back to you. So if and this is the thing that really struck me when I realized this. So if this means what he, I think it means, right? That means if I judge, judge someone without considering two to three witnesses, without going to them and hearing their testimony, without uh, weighing things slowly and with discernment and with patience, then I'm standing before the father one day. And if he says, I'm going to measure you the same way you measured your brother with, it's like, do I want to be judged without him considering my personal words, my testimony, my intents, or my uh, any two to three witnesses that may profess of my good fruits? No, I would never want him to judge me in that way. So how do I judge others therefore by? He has so much more insight and he knows the heart of man. I don't. So therefore, I have to be so careful when it comes to my brothers and sisters trying to judge their hearts, trying to. Yeah. So there is a place there is a place for when someone is a false prophet. But I actually think it's quite obvious. I, we're seeing someone who is leading someone away from the Messiah. They're, they're leading them to another God, like Paul mentioned, you know, basically idol worship in an extent. Uh, there was a certain gentleman a few years back who it started with Paul. He threw out all the letters of Paul as of being Paul being a false uh, apostle. And then he went to the Messiah. No, this Messiah is also uh, false. Right. Like that is a that is a ravenous wolf. And, yeah. and he was in sheep's clothing because he came as a minister event initially. Right. And then that happened. So. It was an obvious thing. It's not a. We don't have to scratch our head about that situation. Yeah, and measuring. Yeah, um, yeah. With what measure you measure others, that will be the measure, standard measure that the Lord uses on you. So that's why I give people the benefit of the doubt. And even if, even if I conclude yes, they're doing something wrong, I try to remind myself that, like I said earlier. There's no excuse for it, but there is a reason. There's a reason that they behave that way. And I need to be sympathetic. And because, uh, you know, sometimes I think if I had gone through what they went through, maybe I would be even worse than them. I, I just don't know. So we need to give people the benefit of the doubt and consider that there's a reason that people are the way they are. Amen. Hey, uh, I want to read just this comment that someone made. Uh, it's so good. Charlie Stephanie Hart said, Mainstream Christians keep most of the law. We're really only talking about three laws, Sabbath, feast days, and dietary laws. We need to have patience. Right? Yeah. So, 
uh yeah guys i just want to wanted to read that for you guys let me see if i could i'm having some issues with the uh bringing it up but that's what it was um so as we conclude here um i want you to share with us the the parable of the good samaritan because i think that that is a good way to a good illustration to to end tonight with um you made a beautiful point regarding it and you you alluded to it earlier as well the certain samaritan can you share a bit more about that yeah that we we always call this the parable of the good samaritan but the bible doesn't call him the good samaritan yeshua has called him a certain samaritan so i call it the parable of the certain samaritan and i think the significance to that is the fact that he didn't call him good because I mean, he was good, obviously, but he wasn't exceptionally good. That it's just the should what should be normal human behavior. That if you see somebody in a situation like that man that went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, and he's in that that situation, the normal human compassion should motivate us to do what we can to help him, even at our own expense, because that's what the Samaritan did. He, uh, you know, he put him on, you know. He, poured in the oil and wine, you know, did what he could to, to nurse his wounds, and then at his own expense, put him up at the inn, told the innkeeper, you know, when I come back, I'll pay you if, if uh, there's any more expense. And so, you know, that should be our normal human response. And then, of course, there's a contrast to the Levite and the priest that saw him and they just ignored him and walked around. And so we want to be careful that we don't just, you know, look away and you know, it's hard because in today's world, you got a lot of homeless people out on the street and they all want to hand out. And, you know, you want to help people, but, you know, if you give them the handout, if you just give them $5, $20, you don't really know what they're going to do with it. Are they going to use it for food or are they going to use it for drugs? Um, that's why anymore I, I give to our local rescue shelter place and, uh, because they're more equipped to help people like that, better equipped than I am to personally help them. So, you know, we, but we want to do, you know, if, if there's an emergency situation, like, you know, this, this man that the Samaritan helped, he was, was not just some homeless person asking for a handout. He was somebody in an emergency situation. He was bleeding. He was in danger of dying if somebody didn't get him someplace where he could recover. So, you know, I don't think that the parable of the certain Samaritan is saying that we should just let a homeless drug user come into our house and live or anything like that. But it means if there's an emergency situation, we should do what we can to help. Mm. Uh, that's so good. I see a comment that's, I think, in relation from Benji Ministries. Are you uh, Because the Muslim villagers had seen us love the widows and the fatherless in their village over the past four years, I was asked to speak. Um, and I'm guessing, sorry, I'd cut off there, but I guess, you know, that's that's what ultimately we should do, right? Is that, like you're saying, if there's a situation like that, we should reach out, meet the need, and let the father use us in that situation. It's It's a dirty thing to get in the mud with this with the the man who's on the side of the road and he's full of blood and he's and it's gonna upset my day and it's gonna upset my schedule you know all of this and yet 
that's what the father expects of me to do. And I just find it amazing that the Messiah used this example of saying it was a Samaritan who came to help because he did it on purpose, you know, if you think about it, to kind of to get at them because this was now the the man that they were the Samaritan is the one they opposed theologically, they opposed culturally. And the one that they love to judge is the one that the Messiah makes the one they should learn from in this story. And it's kind of like he's saying, hey, guys, just stop criticizing and judging theology and your disagreements for like just one second. And perhaps you can actually learn something that the Holy Spirit will do through someone, even your enemy. And that is amazing for me because it shows that the heart of the father and his his ways sometimes includes the requirement for us to be humble and listen to our opponents our enemies or whatever because his holy spirit wants to speak perhaps through them or through a situation they're involved in or through something they do so that we can actually spiritually grow in that area because that's what the messiah did with this example. So, guys, I I think that this is really a call for from our Messiah to to think, how can I love better and how can I make sure that people know I love them, not just because I say it, but walk out actions of love. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I want to ask, is there anything, any last words that you want to share on this topic with everyone who's listening? Um, I could just real quickly tell another story to illustrate, you know, the mm. treatment of people and judge, not judging people by, by outward appearance. About 20 years ago, we had a couple of guys show up. We, we were renting a church for a midweek meeting and a couple of guys showed up and we were in the basement and somebody said, there's a couple of guys upstairs, young guys looking for you. I went upstairs and there were these two guys, you know, tattoos, piercings, you know, uh, dyed hair, uh, little windows in their ears, you know, that type of thing. And, and, uh, and uh, he said, are, are you Daniel Botkin? I said, yeah. I said, um, we're interested in mess stuff. And I said, okay. I said, uh, well, we're having a meeting downstairs. If you want to come, you're welcome to come. I said, well, we can't, we can't. We got to go somewhere. I said, well, we meet here every Saturday. So they came and uh, people didn't judge them by their outward appearance, and and they started bringing tattoo people. And you know, one guy had purple hair one week, blue hair the next week. You know, <laughs> then the next week, I think it was uh, blonde with black spots like a leopard, which I, I actually thought was kind of cool. But uh, <laughs> you know, the story short, uh, the one that had a big silver spike through his nose and a silver thing here and a little silver thing here and the windows in his ears. He is now a father of six of my grandchildren. Now he took out all that metal out of his face now. But uh, he's the grandfather of six of my children. He's our chief musician and uh, one of our elders and uh, teachers and associate pastor of our congregation now. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, uh, you know, that, that should teach us that yeah, I mean, I don't go in for all that, you know, the piercings and tattoos. I mean, obviously, tattoos are forbidden in Leviticus, but, you know, once you got them, you got them. And, 
not much you can do with it once they're there. But, you know, we just need to learn to, uh, you know, not judge by outward appearance. Like, the, you know, the Lord said, judge righteous judgment. Judge not according to, but judge righteous judgment. Amen. Amen. Uh, sir, would you mind uh, ending off tonight with a prayer for us all? Sure. Father in heaven, I uh, thank you for PD and thank you for this uh, time we've had to talk together. And thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us. And we pray that everybody who watches this would be encouraged, edified by faith and uh, drawn closer to you to become more like the Messiah that we all love and serve and worship. Pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much again, Daniel. I really appreciate you coming and sharing with us here tonight from the scriptures. Uh, and guys, uh, thank you all for joining as well. If you would like to know when we go live, you can text Yeshua to 94000. And then we'll send you a text notification when we go live. And uh, I also want to say if this has been a blessing to you, we love to be a blessing to our guests. So if you'd like to make an offering, you can do so at riseonfar.com. Thank you for joining this Rise and Fire live stream, and we'll see you guys in the next one. Blessings to you. Shalom. We love you.